So it is quarter past five on Saturday morning. My phone tells me it's minus one degrees and I am at the station waiting for a train that is going to take me to London where General Synod is in session. This better be worth it. Welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. This week's episode was recorded on location uh, at General Synod. Uh, I do apologise, some of the recording had to happen in rooms where there were quite a lot of other people, so there is some background noise. I hope you will, able, you will be able to hear enough uh, to follow the conversations. General Synod happens twice every year, once in February and once in July, uh, once in London and once in York. Uh, This is the London session and the London session meets at Church House in Westminster. Church House is the administrative headquarters, I guess you might say, of the Church of England. It's on, it forms sort of one side of the quadrangle that's called Dean's Yard, uh, which is just next to Westminster Abbey and Westminster School. It's not the most impressive building in the world. It's brick fronted and it looks like an office block, although uh, it has facilities to be a conference centre. And that's what it feels like inside. There's lots of very ordinary meeting rooms. There's some big, bigger rooms. The room where Synod itself happens is a circular chamber. There's a public gallery that that, uh, you can sit in. If you're not a member, you have to arrive half an hour or so before the sessions start in the morning or the afternoon and ask for a public ticket. Uh, They're free and they're first come, first served. When I was there, the public gallery was by no means full, but I guess if you're there on a day when there's a particularly controversial debate, those tickets are more in demand. They certainly ask you if you're not using your ticket to return it to the desk so that it could be given to somebody else. I'm told there used to be a sort of purpose-built synod that was properly circular and had seats that were tiered so you could really all see each other and microphones all the way around so that you didn't have to move to ask a question. In the current chamber there are microphones in sort of three or four places and if you're asked to speak uh, or ask a question then you have to move to one of those microphones. Anyway after a certain amount of sweet talking of the security guards I was allowed in at quarter past eight to go to a prayer meeting that I'd been invited to and from then on I spent my time in the tea room catching up with various people in the public gallery watching debates. I did seem to spend a lot of my time being where I wasn't supposed to be and having to be escorted by a security guard somewhere else. Anyway, I caught up as I say with several people and the question I asked all of them to begin with was what had made them decide to stand for election to General Synod. I wonder if you could tell me, um, so all three of you quite recently on General Synod, what was it that made you think about standing for election? I mean, it seems to me you give up 
a certain amount of time, you read a quite a big stack of papers, you discuss some things which maybe sound interesting and others which really don't. Why would you want to do that? I think it's important to remember that whilst it can seem irrelevant to the mission and ministry that goes on in local church level, a lot of it is affected uh, by what happens here at a, at a kind of general um, church level. Uh, things can be uh, can be passed, things can be stopped, um, and if we're not involved with that, uh, there's little we can do to complain if we don't like what actually comes out. And likewise, it's a chance to be able to influence it for good, to be able to, sh- to uh, turn around for what we believe is, is genuine mission uh, a ministry that the church at local level should be doing. And as well as the formal bits, um, there's opportunity to chat to people outside the um, normal sessions, in fringe meetings, so that's meetings that happen over lunch or before synod starts in the mornings. And those can be good times to maybe influence, maybe put your point of view forward. Yeah, I think just truth matters, so you want to contend for the truth, uh, what Jesus says, not uh, what culture says, uh, but again, agree with Debbie and Graham, uh, those things as well. You heard the Graham Caskey from the Diocese of Oxford, Debbie Buggs from the Diocese of London, and Stephen Boyle from the Diocese of Blackburn, all three of those members of the House of Laity. Next up, I spoke to Rob Munro, a member of the House of Clergy from the Diocese of Chester. And can you tell us why you think this is an important thing for clergy to stand for Synod? What What is the... Um, I've always been convinced that if you're called to serve, you're called to play a full part in the places that you're serving, and that applies in other groups as well. So with the Church of England, um, the opportunity to serve in the parish and in the diocese, and therefore the National Church was always there, and I've always taken the approach that if you're willing to offer yourself, I believe in the sovereignty of God and that he calls you to things, so I was willing to do that. Um, I was aware too that um, I was... uh, able to think through some of the issues more quickly than other people and that it, there may be gifts in those areas that I should pursue. I think that was actually very typical of everyone I talked to, that people are genuinely part of General Synod because they want to serve, because they want to make a difference, because they want to contend for the truth, because they care about the Church of England and want to do their bit in serving it. And I think that's probably true, the impression I get, not just of those who are evangelicals on General Synod, but most people who stand for General Synod, whatever kind of church they come from, whatever their theological background, are there because they care about the Church of England, they're there because they want to be involved in the decision-making process, because they want to serve uh, the church that they belong to. And although there are uh, a few individuals, maybe a very tiny minority who are there to push particular political agendas, I think that's probably not the case for most people who are there. And and certainly the impression I got from chatting with all sorts of different people on Saturday uh, was that that is not the case, that people are just there because they love the church, they love the Lord Jesus, and they, they want to Uh, be involved uh, in making a difference. Next I spoke to James Carey who is also a member of the House of Laity and he will begin by telling you which diocese he is from. From Bath and Wells. Oh lovely. Which as we know is the funniest of all dioceses. It is the funniest of all dioceses. I think Blackadder has firmly established that forever. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Um, so uh, this is what I've been asking people. Tell me why you decided to stand uh, for election to General Synod. Why did you think this would be a fun way of spending uh, six days of your year? Yes. Well, no one ever said it would be fun, to be okay. fair. Um, but, yeah, I think the thing that... Well, firstly, somebody was stepping down in my diocese, and they, um, a man called Edward Armistead, he's yes. a, a former colonel of the Coldstream Guards, and he's very hard to say no to. Yes, I imagine. So I didn't say no. I said I would at least stand, not really expecting to be um, elected. Um, and then I was elected um, because I, th I think, the, you know, because of my age... I was, I was 39 at time of standing. And that's very young, as we all that's know. That seemed to be young, yes, absolutely. Um, also, if you're a novelist, that's very young as well, by the way. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so I had a, a picture on my election address of me and my wife and my two daughters, and um, they're all better looking than me, so that helped. Um, and I think, in general, uh, people just liked also the fact that I had the BBC on my CV. and yes. um, And so... So people, people who might not necessarily have been coming from the same theological position as yes. you might have thought, oh, I've watched Bluestone 14 yes. or whatever. Yeah, we've got to have that guy on. <laughs> and, you know, Synod. he must no. be hilarious. Yes, exactly. Um, so, no, it's, so in one sense, the, the laity tend to have less of a voting agenda than the clergy. Yeah. Um, so, um, so just to explain, we were talking about this earlier, but um, when people are signing for General Synod, the clergy in the diocese vote for the clergy. That's right representatives and people lay people who are on deanery synods that's right vote for the lay that's representatives right. yeah. so that's a good reason why you might want to think about standing for deanery synod generally in every church i've ever been to it's mm. not so much that there's been an election for deanery synod reps it's been will anyone please go yes so so please do think about doing that yeah, yeah. um you know, I've been to lots of deanery synods, and, and some are better than others. And, you know, there are useful things I think you can do. But one of them is that you do then get a say mm. in electing who will be your general yes. synod reps. Yes, and it's almost as if your vote counts double, because half the people don't vote. There you go. So um, so, uh, so that's worth doing. I do just want to reiterate that point. Please don't think that uh, just because general synod might not be the appropriate place that God is calling you to serve that you shouldn't be involved at all in the structures and business of the Church of England. Churches are always looking, I think, for willing deanery synod representatives. And as we pointed out there, deanery synod representatives are those who get to vote for general synod representatives. So there's something really important uh, there, not least all the other business of deanery synod. And also diocesan synod, which can again seem uh, a lot of time and effort for very little gain. But diocesan synods can do things like put forward motions for general synod to consider. And just recently, there was a motion which came from Hereford Diocesan Synod asking general synod to consider writing new liturgies for welcoming transgender people into the church. So actually, those uh, sort of lower levels of the hierarchy all have an influence on what happens at general synod and therefore decisions which are made which do affect the whole church. So if you're somebody who has a few free evenings here and there, they, you know, it tends not to be a lot. It's sort of four meetings or six meetings in a year, something like that, um, that you'd be willing to give up uh, to 
spend at a deanery synod or a diocesan synod, please don't think that's a waste of your time. That is a really worthwhile thing to do. And I want to do a podcast at some point in the future, particularly about deanery synods and thinking about some of the really valuable things that could be achieved at deanery level and that are being achieved by some deaneries while others uh, are sort of wasting the opportunity. So stay tuned for more of that. One thing I don't think I'd fully appreciated before I visited General Synod was the amount of business that goes on not in the main sessions. So there are what are called fringe meetings, which Debbie mentioned earlier, that happen both before Synod in the morning, uh, during lunch. There's an hour and a half for lunch, so there's certainly time uh, to have quite a lot of meetings that seem to go on during that period. Um, And I guess at other times as well, maybe. Those fringe meetings can be concerned with all kinds of things. Some of them are prayer meetings. Some of them are meetings around a particular issue. So, for example, is there on Saturday when a motion about the value of people with Down syndrome was due to be discussed? And the previous day, there'd been a fringe meeting involving Sally Phillips and various other people speaking about the issue of uh, this new test that's due to come in, uh, which... Uh, can easily uh, test whether babies uh, have Down syndrome while the mother's still pregnant. And in countries where this test is used, particularly uh, in Iceland and I think one or two other Scandinavian countries, it means that the rate of children being born with Down syndrome has dropped to virtually zero. So fringe meetings about issues that Synod are going to be discussing. Others are fringe meetings organised by particular groups. So while I was there, I saw a meeting that was going on organised by Mission to Seafarers and, you know, various people uh, who think that members of General Synod might want to know what they're doing. While I was talking to Graham and Debbie and Steve, we discussed the prayer meeting that we'd been at previously and the value of having a fringe meeting for a particular group of like-minded people while you're on Synod. Um, We were at uh, one of those fringe meetings just now. Don't worry, that's just the bell that that signifies the session's going to be starting very soon. Okay, it's not a fire alarm and we need to evacuate the building immediately because I haven't yet read my emergency procedures leaflet so I wouldn't know what to do. So we were at one of those fringe meetings this morning. Uh, It was ostensibly a prayer meeting although we did a certain amount of discussion as well. Um, What is the the value of having that kind of meeting? So this is a meeting for conservative evangelicals who are on synod. What what is the the value of having those, those kind of fringe meetings? It's very difficult in uh, in a church meeting like General Synod that has as, as wide as Christian beliefs mm. as it as it does. So actually, it's very valuable um, each day to start the day um, before business, uh, just looking at God's word, uh, being able to pray, but being amongst fellow believers who we know are united in doctrine and united in our in our mission, but more than that, that we know are united in Christ. And it can be a very difficult place to be. Sometimes it's in it. You can very feel that what we believe, you know, the word of God is teaching us, can be under attack. Uh, and it can be very difficult personally and spiritually. And so it's a real way to be able to encourage us uh, with God's word and, and with prayer before we, st- we come to, to, to start each day. 
Great. And do you have a sense of, um, so how many people are on General Synod? Does anyone know the answer to that? I could find that out later. About 450. About 450, and that's divided obviously into the, the bishops and then the clergy and the laity. And approximately how many Conservative Evangelicals would you say? You, you, you probably, look at, the, at the most, people who would identify themselves as like probably at the most between 50 and 60 right. of the whole so, so it's more than 10% maybe, but not much more. But not much more. No. And, yeah. Okay, and so um, in that sort of minority group, the, the, um, the value of, of having that sense of who each other is and, and getting to know each other and praying together. A safe space. Yeah, yeah. And actually one of the things that, that we did in that meeting was just sort of talk through how the business had gone yesterday and what was coming up today and... Um, yeah, so I can see that's really helpful. Synod can sometimes be a bit of a lonely place when you don't find someone to sit with, and so it's yeah. nice having that some, somewhere to sit at the beginning of the day, pray through things, and remind some more friendly faces perhaps uh, through the day who you can go chat to if you're being a bit, I don't know who to talk to. It's really helpful. Great. Like friendship, really, sometimes. Great. And um, so we talked a little bit about uh, yesterday's discussion, uh, which was, so one of the big discussions yesterday was about the proposed changes to the Anglican-Methodist relationship. So there's been a, a sort of relationship between Anglican the Church of England and the Methodist Church for a while, but there's a proposal that's actually become much closer. Um, was that a, a helpful, healthy debate? Do you have, um, uh, are we encouraged by that, or is, is it all a bit of a Church of England mess? Um, I think it is a Church of England um, fudge. Someone said it's two failing institutions trying to get together with some big historic differences. And whilst I can see that on the ground at parish level there are some good partnerships that work depending on the kind of theology of the people sure. in the parish, um, my own feeling is to spend time and energy and financial resources trying to paper over the cracks isn't really what I would want the church to do, but clearly that's something that Justin Mulby wants. And yes. actually the um, debate... Well, the people being called to speak were very cleverly managed. Okay. That idea of debates being cleverly managed was something that came up a number of times in conversations with different people. And I have to say there was quite a range of opinion on that. So uh, one or two people, and particularly those who've been in Synod for quite a long time, just felt that that was how debates worked, that actually... Uh, the people who were called to speak would be expect to be called in a particular kind of order and that you'd expect the debate to end with somebody who was in favour of the motion that was being proposed as well as uh, the person proposing the motion at the front. Others felt perhaps a little bit more cynical about that and that perhaps some of the chairs of the different sessions were being a bit more... Um, uh, deliberate in the way that they were managing those debates to get a, a particular uh, sense of, of uh, one side being favoured more than another. I, I couldn't tell you whether that was true or not. The sessions that I was uh, sitting in were not particularly controversial and I didn't feel uh, that there was any evidence of, of any bias in the way that those uh, meetings were being chaired. Uh, but maybe that is something uh, that that is sort of inevitable in some ways, I guess. It's hard 
uh, even if you are the chair of a session, to lose all your uh, inherent and natural biases. And I think particularly in a debate uh, like that one about the unity between the Church of England and the Methodist Church, when the Archbishop of Canterbury is so clearly in favour, and one or two people particularly mentioned the nature of his closing speech in which he uh, claimed that he felt uh, the the move towards unity was something that was in line with both the word of God and the spirit of God. I guess it's hard in that kind of situation to really feel that um, the debate is, is properly two-sided. I also think um, it was interesting uh, to, to hear the sessions. I mean, they're called debates, but they're not really debates. And I think that is inevitable when you've got a group of several hundred people in a chamber. They follow very much the style of debating that we have in the Houses of Parliament, which is to say that uh, the chair or the uh, speaker would be the equivalent uh, in, the, uh, in Parliament, calls on people to speak. And the person will speak according to what they've previously decided they want to, to say, rather than in response to what somebody else has just said. Um, and also it was interesting in the uh, different discussions that I, were in, I was in, uh, in one or two of them, so the uh, discussion about religious communities, People weren't invited so much to ask questions as to give speeches. And the first two speeches were allowed to be five minutes long and clearly it had been predetermined who they were going to be because one of them was uh, Justin Welby and one of them uh, was the head of church army and they both had you know, quite long speeches prepared uh, to give on the subject. And then the following speeches were limited to three minutes, but they were allowed to be speeches rather than questions. Whereas in the debates that I heard about safeguarding and about digital evangelism, people were supposed to ask questions. And indeed, in one or two cases, when the speaker was um, clearly not asking a question, the chair would interrupt and say, please, can you get to the question? Um, so there, w there was a difference there, and um, the questions then would be answered by the person who had given the presentation or proposed the motion or whatever. So different styles there, but very difficult, obviously, in a room with 450 people or thereabouts, to have a proper debate concerning anything substantive. Points can be made... But those point for those points to then be opposed and then um, answered back to might happen. But I guess you'd be likely to get a lot of other stuff happening in between. And so very difficult to then follow a line of argument to its end. And therefore also, I think, um, contributing to what um, I think a lot of people felt um, was quite concerning at Synod last July, was actually substantive debate not really happening at all and people just taking the opportunity to uh, speak uh, from a very emotional point of view and a very personal point of view without necessarily giving due attention to uh, the theology of what was being discussed, the um, impact of what was being discussed in um proper ecclesiological kind of terms uh, and so on and I think that is concerning if debates are reduced to merely 
emotional and personal level, then I don't think that is really uh, a proper basis for the church to be making uh, decisions, to be enacting canon law and so on. Here's Graham Kasky talking about the kind of debate that you can have in Synod and how uh, evangelicals can contribute to that more helpfully. Yeah, there is. Uh, and that's not to say that uh, as evangelicals that using stories, using emotions is an inherently bad thing. But it, in all, back in July, it became to the extent of if you don't vote for this motion, then I know someone's going to commit suicide. Mm. That's a very difficult, no matter what you think of the motion, that's a very difficult argument to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a very... Um, yeah, I mean, it's not an argument, it's just... In a, sense, yeah, it, 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 and it's, 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 it's a very yeah. emotive, yeah. But there has been less of that part of it, has been, there's been less emotionally um, volatile items on the agenda. Right. So that, that does help. But people find a way to be able to do things, but it, it, it is frustrating that there's a very lack of... There's not, often, not an awful lot of use of... Uh, scripture yeah. in uh, our discussions. Uh, there's not an awful lot of really engaging uh, with theology. People say that they are, but when you, when you start bringing up scripture, quoting certain passages, uh, literally there can be booing, there can be hissing sometimes, because people don't like, oh there's that evangelical quoting scripture again. So, and part of our responsibility, I think, is to make sure that we don't just speak scripture in judgment. Yeah. That's part of it. Actually, part of it, we need to affirm things that are good and say, yeah, Scripture says this, this is what we're doing, this is a good thing. Yeah. I think we've got a responsibility to be able to do that, to bring God's Word more um, into the um, debating, uh, debating chamber. Graham Kasky there talking about what evangelicals can bring to the debate in terms of bringing God's Word, both uh, when things are good and also when uh, things need to be uh, shown to be against God's word. I also talked to Rob Monroe about how evangelicals can contribute at Synod, and we talked not just about the content uh, of what we might want to say, but also the importance of the way in which we say it. If we believe in, you know, the truth of the scriptures and the God who is love and all of those things, that we should be the most loving, winsome, yeah. we should be the clearest in truth, we should be the most gracious in love. Yeah. And um, living that means listening hard sometimes, um, not jumping too quickly to uh, conclusions. You know, my experience has been... Um, I expected more conspiracy theory than it proves to be the case. Yeah. Um, uh, and so sometimes remembering that in the light of it. Yeah. That's not to say that the you know the church is managed and organised and it has a, an agenda and all of those things do come out in the general synod as well and the politics of it. That's not quite all I have to say about Synod, uh, and I guess we'll maybe have another podcast episode in a couple of weeks, catching up on some of the rest of those conversations. But as we finish, I asked some of the people I spoke to what they'd like you to be praying for general Synod members and for the Synod as a whole. And I thought that would be a good way for us to close this week's podcast. I think, I think first it just comes down to people's view of the Bible. So pray that people would change their view of where authority is held in the church and that they derive their uh, authority from God's good words. Um, and it, it wouldn't be, I mean, in some ways it is the magic bullet in terms of that would solve a lot of problems. But, uh, but you know, you want other things as well. But yeah. I think that's just the, that's so crucial that people just don't really believe God's word is God's word. And I think also 
that there would be a real unity uh, in Christ among those from uh, an evangelical and orthodox persuasion. Um, we're not perfect. We can sometimes be have discussions amongst ourselves, if I could put it like that. But actually, that we're here because we all want to glorify God in what we're doing. We want to see uh, God's work um, through this church, and actually that we be united in doing so, uh, and that we can put our differences aside, you know, unite around God's word uh, and around the gospel uh, to be able to to do that more effectively. And also just patience and energy. They're long days. Thanks so much to everyone who is willing to speak to me to contribute to this podcast. Graham Caskey, Steve Boyle, Debbie Bugs, Chris Fry, Rob Monroe and James Carey. And thanks so much to everyone who welcomed me uh, as a visitor at Synod on Saturday and to Debbie in particular who showed me around and helped me not to get too lost uh, in, in the maze of church house and for much of the day had to carry my water bottle because I wasn't allowed to. That's it for this week's podcast episode. Do tune in again next week. We'll be talking to Dave Walker and Jason Ward about 10 years in ministry and also hearing a little bit from the Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference where they were both speaking. Thanks so much for listening.